Someone once argued that you can judge the depth of a spirituality by the beauty of the art that it produces. And if you don't think that this is particularly important, think about this. As the Christian imagination dies, what rises in its place is the Marxist imagination, the atheist imagination, the nihilist imagination, that as our ability to put everything within a Christian framework dies, that these things take its place. So today I want to talk about the strange death of the modern imagination. So you think about the way that we went from the Sistine Chapel then to the Catholicism which sort of underlies Lord of the Rings and, and the way that Tolkien you know, saw the world and then look at the art produced by modern Christianity which is to say uh, almost non-existent. I would say that Christian music and the Christian worldview within the music world is, uh, is actually thriving but in general the art produced by modern Christianity is kind of a reflection of just how shallow our way of seeing God and the way that we see God interact with the world truly is. Now this brings me to an idea that I think that for much of modern Christianity we live in a sort of consumerist Gnosticism and I don't know a lot about Gnosticism but my understanding is that it sees sort of a complete separation of heaven and earth that as science showed us what it could do, you know, that it showed the, the modern world how productive and efficient it could make things, you know, because science reduces things into products. It reduces the world into something which could be used as an object, and, and there's obviously a lot of good to that. <clears throat> but I want to um, give you sort of a thought experiment here that, that I heard recently, which I thought was really interesting. So take these four things, categorize these four things into two groups and see which is most natural to you, which comes to you first. Religion, science, magic, and technology. Most of us will naturally put religion and magic in one category and science and technology in another category. I guess this is because magic and religion can sort of be a little bit harder to understand, a little bit more obscure. And science and technology can be a bit more immediately understood. But Peter Crave's point, which I thought was really interesting, is that if we thought about this more deeply, we would put science and religion in one category, and magic and technology in the other category. And the reason for that is this. Science is the pattern of the physical, and religion is the pattern of the non-physical and that magic and technology are both obsessed with power. They are both a way to exploit and to make ourselves the end, whereas science is the conforming to the way that matter is, and religion is the conforming to the way that God and morality is in its best, in its proper use. But that magic, like technology, is a way to use things to our own ends. And I think that that's really interesting. And, and, and like I said a minute ago, I think the if you can judge a depth of spirituality, if you can judge a, a spiritual tradition by the art that it produces, then what does that say about modern Christianity? What does it say about how shallow and how separate our faith from our experiences, our, you know, our view of God from our view of life? that these things are very 
categorized. They don't bleed into each other in the way that they should. So I want to I want to make a few things clear. One, I think the idea of Christian movies, the idea that I could see a movie which depicts a religious idea, or um, someone was telling me the other day about the movie The War Room. You know, the idea that I could have this spiritual concept displayed and visualized in a movie, I think that's very cool. I think there is uh, an important place for that. But I think there's a very deep need for a worldview which encompasses every kind of story. You know, I think we need to um, imagine a world where every different kind of story could exist inside of a Christian framework. That it doesn't necessarily need that, you know, although we do need perhaps religious stories and religious movies, that we also need a worldview big enough and uh, sort of comprehensive enough that every kind of story could exist in that framework, that um, we need a view of God that is so permeating of every aspect of reality that every kind of story could exist within it. So I want to talk about two examples which I think are already doing this well. So the first one, which many of you may have seen, I believe it's on Netflix, is the British crime drama Broadchurch. I've been a, a big fan of this, but especially of the first season. So the first season of Broadchurch is about a very dark subject matter, and it's about a, a child who was killed. And um, so that sounds like that would be irredeemably you know, exploitative. But actually, I think it handles it in a very just way. The reasons that I think that this is an example of, of this done well is although it does cover a dark subject matter and life does indeed have very dark aspects, it has a very high value on human life. Every aspect of it values human life in a very significant way. And it shows the true weight of a thing, of a tragic thing like this. And it shows the weight of it on the town and especially on the family. There's a scene where an older man is uh, kind of assumed that he had something to do with it. And in reality, he didn't have anything to do with it. And it shows the weight of that on a human life. It gives an immense amount of value and weight to the decisions that humans make and ultimately to human life. A more sophisticated way to judge media, to judge what we intake, is exploitation. How does it treat human life? Does it treat human life as cheap? Does it treat human life and sex and love and death as cheap? Does it treat it as disposable? Or does it treat it with the utmost value? Does every moment of exploitation have a cost? Does it show the cost of sin or the cost of exploitation? We need a much broader framework in which stories can take place if we want to take back the culture. A more obvious example, I guess, would be Lord of the Rings. That Lord of the Rings is not necessarily a Christian story um, because it's not, you know, it's just its own story. But it takes place in a world of right and wrong. You know, it's really a story of how power corrupts in absolute power corrupts absolutely. So I want to go into a few principles of how we can tell better stories. And you may think, well, I'm not a filmmaker, <laughs> and I don't know why this applies to me. And maybe it doesn't, but at least you might find it of interest. So there should be at least one character that is good. 
you know something that I noticed when watching a lot of uh, a lot of TV and movies that people thought, oh, that's so cool, that's so modern, is that every single person is vile. If you see a show, let's say Game of Thrones or something like that, where every character is duplicitous, where every single character is dark, and the ones you think are good will later be shown to be evil. That when you see a show or a movie like that, that's when you go, oh, this is modern. That modern equals Nietzschean, or modern equals nihilistic. That there, but that if we are going to tell better stories, if we are going to tell truer, more beautiful stories, there should at least be one character that is good. And good is not an absence of flaw, and it is not an absence of struggle with evil. But it, it is someone who is able to control, and is able to have character to overcome their flaws, or their downfalls. Uh, the second one would be to guard against nihilism. Like I said a minute ago, modernity equals nihilism. We are bathing in a framework of emptiness. We are bathing in the air of the beliefs of meaninglessness. This does not mean that a character or a scene could not depict nihilism, but it should not exist in a nihilistic framework. Or to say it this way, it's not that a story couldn't depict evil, but it should never depict evil as good. And it should always show the cost of exploitation. All sin is exploitation, either you exploiting yourself or you exploiting someone else. And all exploitation has a cost. Never depict evil as good. So I want to read a piece here about the death of imagination within our society. When society suffers a loss of imagination, counterfeit forms of it will start appearing. Demagogues, conmen, and false prophets who trot out bad ideas will succeed when people cannot think through their consequences. Some may attribute the current cultural decay to entitled generations that never learned the importance of gratitude. Having never engaged in any serious struggle such as World War or a Great Depression, these people cannot recognize their blessings. All they can recognize is the great expanse of luxuries, like a college education or health care, or the challenge of finding a high-paying job right away. Having never faced a serious challenge in their lives, even in their religion which has dumped the gospel of the cross in place of the gospel of prosperity, they balk at the challenge of basic adulthood. And all this is true to a degree, but this problem goes even deeper than that. Not only have the last three and a half generations never experienced serious adversity, but they have lost the ability to even imagine it. Their minds cannot even recreate the reality of ideas that have made their lives so wonderful. It is not that they take Christianity, capitalism, or limited government for granted, but it's that they cannot conceive of how these things actually even work. Like a great book, there is too much to process. On the other hand, atheism, socialism, and an authoritarian state are all quite simple and require little imagination. A popular response to this crisis in imagination has been to better tailor these important ideas to the unimaginative population, if people cannot understand the life of Jesus, God's commandments, and the importance of the resurrection, 
then maybe the church should start promising heaven to people who believe in their own way. If people cannot understand supply and demand, cooperative advantages, and property rights, then maybe business leaders should just claim that capitalism makes people rich and happy without demanding anything in return. If people cannot understand the key functions of government, the need to decentralize power, and maximizing personal autonomy, then maybe conservative politicians should just demonize government and glorify the individual. It should be the goal of conservatives to revive society's imagination. This would first mean rebutting the counterfeits and calling out bad ideas. They should not accept the false dichotomy of imagination and reality. They should point out that imagination is reality, and anything else is only vanity. A well-developed imagination is the key to a richer, fuller life, not just for the individual, but for the community. It allows people to connect, to see beyond themselves, to see without literally seeing. Without it, communities become mere collectives of people who lack the means to understand each other, and thereby have to connect through cruder criteria like race, class, or sexual preference. And individuals become mere actors who merely react to various social pressure and forfeit the control of their own lives. In short, imagination is what makes a person human. It is the activity that permits all other activities. And if the conservatives truly intend to conserve anything, it should be this. If necessity is the mother of invention, then convenience is the mother of impotence. As our society becomes more convenience-based, we lose our individuality. And you may think, well, who needs Shakespeare when you have two free day shipping? And by the way, I don't know anything about Shakespeare, and I haven't read anything that he wrote, so I'm not getting on my high horse here. But there is a true cost to the way that we live. Although death by hunger is plummeting, death by suicide is on the rise. We aren't dying from lack of food. We're dying from lack of meaning. So next I want to talk about imagination and quality of life. If you're happy with your life, if you feel that your experience of your daily life is what it could and should be, if you feel that you do truly feel the beauty of every moment, then by all means, you know, just enjoy your life. I'm, I'm, I'm not really here to speak to you. But if you feel that you are trapped in a cycle of feeling numb, of seeing something that you know should make you feel something, but it doesn't. You know, this happened to me several times throughout the last several years. I could tell that I would see a sunset, I would see a child, I would see something that I knew should cause me to feel gratitude, should cause me to feel something, and it didn't. I felt nothing. And I could tell that there was something about the way I was living that was deeply off. And so I want to talk about how our stimulation is causing us to feel numb, how it is causing us to feel dead, and that part of the way out of this is creativity, that if we can pare back our convenience so that we once again have to invent, that we, I believe deeply that we are made in the image of God, and that part of being made in the image of God is to create, that as He created we are to create, and that our joy in life, much of our joy in life, comes from our ability to create, and that without it we do not experience life in the way that 
they're capable. So the YouTube channel Better Ideas talked about one of the things he taught me that I thought was really interesting is that he schedules his day with a sort of escalation of stimulation. So in the morning he'll do like the hardest things, the things which are least exciting, you know. And then at the end of the day he might, you know, watch YouTube or watch TV or whatever, these things that are uh, more mindless that at the beginning of the day when he has the highest amount of energy, then he'll do the things which are the hardest. And then at the end when he has the least amount of energy, he'll sort of just consume and just relax, you know. And I think that a day of escalating stimulation is a really smart way to structure life. And I want to end with these two things that are the way out of numbness. Do not let a simulation of someone's life become your life. Whether through movies or video games or anything else. And all those are fun things. And I think all of those are, you know, just fun ways to pass time. But make sure that you are doing the best you can for your life. That you are truly treating your life as valuable that it would be much better for you to write a one-page story than for you to watch a hundred movies. That if you watch a hundred movies, you're seeing a lot of creativity. But if you are to write half a page story, just here's an idea. Start reading a book, then at some point during when you're reading the book, if something pops in your head like, oh, well, they could have done it like this, stop right there and write down that idea. You may think it's stupid. You may think that you're stupid for thinking that it isn't stupid. But write down that idea. That I've listened to several people who wrote books, and and uh, one of them was Elmore Leonard, who who has a lot of uh, movies and stuff based on his work. And in a Q and A, someone asked him. They said, "Hey, I want to be a writer. What should I do first? And he basically said, "Read a bunch of stuff, copy it, and change one thing." All creation is based on other creations. Anyway, back to the point. There are two ways out of this feeling of numbness. The first one is to pull back our consumerism, to pull back our to pull back our stimulation, to do harder things so that we might feel the moments in our life, so that we might feel the goodness of a sunset, we might feel the laughter of a child, we might actually feel things again. And we should not be too arrogant to try older ideas. And that leads to the second one. There is a sort of dark narcissism, a sort of nihilistic self-obsession that comes with modern life. That because modern life does not believe in the ultimate good, because it does not believe in God, in something outside of nature, in something that created our moral code, because it does not believe in anything but us, it makes us, by necessity, be self-obsessed. That we have inward eyes out of necessity. That we have inward eyes as a way to cope, as a way to cope with the misery of our life, with the misery of the world, with our lack of true meaning. And that surrender to something outside of us is ultimately the end of emptiness, that death begins to die when you ask the people in your life about how they're doing, about how their day was, how their kids are, how their job is, what their life is like. When you read a book so that you can think about how someone else thinks, how they see the world, what they believe, that as you turn your eyes outward, that that is how numbness begins to fade.
that is how death begins to die. I love you guys.